0: You're listening to The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsors. 2020 is behind us, but last year's challenges haven't disappeared. It's still difficult to plan ahead as a business, and even more so when you can't connect the dots between your people, processes, and technology. That's where Vena comes in. Vena is the complete planning platform that is loved by finance and trusted by business. The Vena growth engine combines the world's leading grid Excel. With the technology and methodology you need to power your plan to grow. Vena empowers your financial transformation so you can go from accounting mystery to planning mastery and grow with confidence. Learn more at www.venasolutions.com forward slash backbone.
1: What really needs to be in place is revenue visibility and predictability. I can't emphasize how important those two are aspects are. So I'm taking for granted that the company has built a solid product line and we've got an organization in place, we've got a great culture, we've got the right people, but you're now entering a realm where your investors expect you and are paying you to understand what's going on with the business.
0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. Joining me on this episode of The Backbone is Kurt Sigsteed, CFO at ClearBank, the fastest, most affordable way for founders to fund their business. As ClearBank's chief financial officer, Kurt is responsible for all finance functions, including capital markets, investor relations, accounting, treasury, fp legal, corporate development, and business operations. He has always loved working with driven entrepreneurs and business leaders. He has led teams advising on some of tech's largest M&A deals and raised billions of dollars of capital across public and private debt and equity markets. Prior to ClearBank, Kurt led JP Morgan's West Coast technology investment banking practice. And so without further ado, here's Kurt CFO at ClearBank. Thanks for joining me on The Backbone. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to get you on here. And we've got lots to get through. It's been an episode that I've been looking forward to for a while. Why don't we dive right into it? Prior to joining ClearBank, you were the head of technology investment banking for the West Coast at J.P. Morgan. Over the last 22 years, while you were there, you led over $200 billion of technology M&A transactions and over 80 technology IPOs, follow-ons, and private placements, which is a tremendous feat. Before we dive into your experience, on getting companies ready for IPO and M&A, which we'll cover in in this episode. Uh, I want to go back through your career journey and how it all started for you. Sure. Thanks, Susan. Great to be here
1: and uh, happy to give you some some perspectives. So my journey, and it sounds like like I had this all planned out from, from day one, which is not the case. It started when I got to business school and I became very interested in finance. And at the time, working for an investment bank was sort of one of those career paths that was very intriguing and attractive for a variety of reasons. And so I had a summer internship with JP Morgan. Post that, got my offer and off I went. But importantly, what you know I realized is that because of that uh, summer internship, I, I got real exposure to people and the culture at the firm. That gave me the comfort that I was in the right spot. And I was really interested in technology and, and it was really just a personal interest. I wasn't an engineer or a CS major. I just was really interested in how technology could change a lot of things going on in the world at the time. That's what led me to technology investment banking at, at, at JP Morgan early in my career. And throughout my career, really the most rewarding part of my job was working with you know, entrepreneurs and founders. That's what really sort of drove me in my career in terms of working with really exciting people, doing really exciting things on the bleeding edge of tech. Going back, when I joined JP Morgan, we certainly were not the powerhouse that JP Morgan is today. This was pre-Jamie Dimon. And so I, I grew with the firm and its its efforts in its technology investment bank, which was an incredibly rewarding experience. I think my first deal was like for a small defense contractor. I think it was $125 million M&A deal. And the largest deal was advising Dell on acquiring EMC, which I still think stands out as the largest tech M&A deal of all time at, at about $67 billion. As you yeah. mentioned, I worked on a lot of IPOs, Twilio, VMware, companies like Smartsheet, Alterix, Avalara, lots of software M&A. But importantly, I got to a point in my career after running the West Coast Tech Practice for a while, and I, I really sort of this... This passion and this desire to work with entrepreneurs was was still there and as strong as ever. And I would met Andrew and Michelle a few years earlier, and lo and behold, they persuaded me to join ClearBank. So here I am.
0: That's awesome. And we're gonna dive into a bit of those M and and IPO stories and later on in the in the show. But before we get there, why don't you tell us a little bit about ClearBank? What does the company do, and what is it all about?
1: Sure. Well, in a nutshell. ClearBank is building the capital infrastructure for the internet. We work with digital founders, software platforms, and financial institutions to remove the complexity of financing growth. So really, that's a lot of jargon in, in one sentence, so let me just sort of break that down. So our first step is we really pioneered this idea of the way founders get capital to grow with our MCA product, and MCA means merchant cash advance. In a lot of ways we created a new asset class what's interesting is in building that business and we've built a substantial business we've had about a billion and a half of originations we've been growing over a hundred percent we found ourselves at the center of a very interesting emerging trend which is embedded finance and we have built relationships with platforms like big commerce quarna and silicon valley bank where we're actually now providing the embedded capital solution. So that's the ability to offer their customers a financing solution where they couldn't before. This leverages our AI and machine learning, our capital markets expertise, and our core technical lending and regulatory experience. But to get there, we had to build our core business first. We had to build the financial infrastructure first that, as I mentioned, capital markets, underwriting risk, and core tech ops. This gave us the ability to build a large customer base And now we have over $20 of GMV, which is gross merchandise volume, which is sort of a transaction metric for all of our customers on our platform. And that's important because we can build data insights and modeling, and it helps us manage risk. But more interestingly, it also helps us build new products and solutions very quickly because we can see where our customers are spending their money and what, what issues they're having in terms of growing their companies. So you may ask, so what makes our platform unique? Well, we continue to grow our originations during COVID when many other platforms stopped or just simply failed. And our secret sauce is really that we're cross-platform. So we incorporate data sources from many different areas that power our customers' companies. And secondarily, we inform our founders on the best way to deploy their capital. So we're a different kind of capital provider and that we just don't provide capital and then you decide how to spend it, we give you suggestions based on what we see in terms of your performance because we have benchmarking and insights as how to best deploy that capital. Then we have a card and payment platform to ensure that we understand how that capital is spent. Sort of, We understand and we give sort of a set of guardrails to our founders to, to help them spend that capital most effectively. And it feels like it's working. We're early, but as I mentioned, we've, we've got sort of 100% percent plus growth and and uh you know last in the fourth quarter we were up 100, 130% year over year so good all good so far that's what i would say so
0: yeah, no, that's great. And you mentioned other platforms may have had to stop originations during COVID, but it seems like it's actually accelerated your originations when other providers may have had to stop. Would you say that's, that, that's been an advantage to your kind of cross platform approach?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, what we found is that if you're a, a payments platform, your single data source is your is the transactions that that company you know, is doing on your platform, but they may have other platforms that they're using. They may have other stores that they're you know, transacting on. And so you don't get the full picture. So you've really just got a slice of the pie. So you have a limited sort of perspective or view of the entire customer. Whereas we can see inventory, we can see sales, we can see financial performance, we can see banking data, accounting data. So we have it all in one one package. And I think the second thing is, is it revealed those who really made decisions based on data and real-time data, which is what we have, versus those who were fintechs that, (laughs) in effect, were leveraging processes that a lot of more traditional lending institutions already had in place, but were probably running a little bit closer on the edge of risk, and they got caught. And those, those institutions, in some cases, they, they, they stopped lending altogether and some of them sort of disappeared from the landscape.
0: That, that's a good overview of, of ClearBank and what, what the company is about. Time for a quick break and a word from our sponsors. 2020 forced all of us to react, adapt and pivot, all without a playbook. As we kick off 2021, how are you planning to lead and grow your business? Whether you're looking to make up for lost time or to accelerate growth, Vena can help you streamline the way you plan. If you're looking to upgrade your ability to adapt, improve the way you manage your workforce, increase your number of accounts, or gain a better understanding of what drives your business, you need a plan to grow. And that's where Vena's complete planning platform comes in. Check out venasolutions.com forward slash backbone for more information. And now back to the show. One of the things that you said to me, which was very interesting when we did our introductory call that I want to learn more about was this concept of risk within a startup. And so as we know, there are tremendous amounts of risk for companies all around, but especially so for startups. However, there are risks that a startup has to take versus those that they don't. And there are things that you need to pioneer versus things that that you don't. So as you think about risks as an emerging company has to take as a CFO, what frameworks or mental models do you use to evaluate those risks? Sure. So I appreciate the call out. But I, I don't think I'm really saying anything
1: that groundbreaking here. The way I see it is that we are paid in the venture back world so as executives or sort of team leaders to drive the highest returns in the shortest period of time possible that's it. now i may invite some questions on this it sounds kind of crass but at the end of the day vcs are asset managers and they're paid on performance end of sentence and this performance all has to happen at the bleeding edge of innovation <laughs> so you've invited a very complex set of, of issues that you have to deal with in order to succeed therefore my thought process is always to help us move as quickly as possible while thinking about ways to de-risk it so what do i mean by that so a need comes up for a platform or a tool like just as an example and typically there's a bias to build it our engineering team and software teams they're very talented and i see this across when i was working in tech at JP Morgan a lot as well. But we always have to contemplate the question, can we partner? Can we buy it? Does that give us the ability to move faster, even at a slightly higher cost? And Sometimes that's a bit orthogonal in terms of risk thinking or sort of cash management because you may pay a little bit more. We're not building it ourselves and we're a proprietary tech company. But what we do in those cases is we are de-risking our goals. We're taking away elements that may ultimately slow us down. And that's important because I go back to what v- how VCs are paid, they are asset managers. And this is also true on the administrative side. So there's often, we're a new company, we have a new way of thinking. We want to think about new policies, new plans, new processes on the administrative side, whether that's finance, HR, or otherwise but to a large extent all of these already exist and it's just a matter of quickly deciding kind of what is core to our culture and our mission and basically going out and getting those policies and sort of thinking through them and implementing them we don't have to spend a lot of time or money creating something from scratch so that that's what i mean by i think of our ultimate stakeholder here obviously employees are incredibly important and our customers and but those who have sort of put the capital up to make the, the business work and so how can we be the best stewards of that capital and through reducing risk but moving things along as fast as possible?
0: Right. No, that makes a ton of sense. And as you touched on earlier on in this episode, you've had a storied career prior to ClearBank working with technology companies on MA transactions and IPOs. And so On one hand, we're seeing more and more companies stay private longer, but then in 2020, we've seen vehicles like SPACs and direct listings gain popularity, resulting in a bit of a tech IPO wave with a plethora of companies going public. So I want to spend some time talking about two items. First, IPO readiness, and then two, M&A. So maybe starting with IPO readiness, what is the right time for a company to think about going public in this economic climate, and specifically for the CFO, what are the things that need to be in place before that can happen? Sure. So,
1: first, and I counsel many companies along these lines. The IPO is one of likely many financing events that the company will execute. So it has this. It is a unique one because now you have or will hopefully have, if the IPO is executed correctly, a liquid security that investors can put value on every day. But it's it's one of many that you're going to undertake. So you have to put that in perspective as sort of a management team and a board. And it, it introduces a very new element to the company, which is that every day there is a different price on your company based on the way the stock moves. And that's something that companies that have been private have never had to deal with before. Oftentimes that introduces some frustration or sort of misunderstanding about why the stock moves every day in a certain way. And to a large extent, those can be macro events that the company has no control over. So that's just first about the IPO and kind of the backdrop to it. And just in terms of being ready or specifically to the CFO, obviously minimum listing requirements and governance have to be in order and all of those things. But what really needs to be in place is revenue, visibility, and predictability. And I can't emphasize how important those two aspects are. So I'm taking for granted that the company has built a solid product line and we've got an organization in place, we've got a great culture, we've got the right people. But you're now entering a realm where your investors expect you and are paying you to understand what's going on with the business. And so besides an accounting scandal or some type of sort of governance challenge, nothing hurts a company more than the inability to instill confidence that management has a view on revenue for the next quarter or year. Investors get very nervous when management, and in particular the CFO, because oftentimes you're providing the guidance, doesn't have the the framework to put revenue visibility in place. Because at the end of the day, we are in place when you're a public company on behalf of the shareholders to manage the business. In order to manage the business, you have to be able to forecast. You should be best equipped to be able to forecast the business. And if you can't do that, well, then many would argue that you probably shouldn't be in the seat. So the most important thing is to have that ability to understand revenue visibility and predictability as sort of that fundamental aspect. And as the CFO, having the organization and the the, the tools and the information available to actually understand how that's going to work and how you're going to provide yourself with enough wiggle room and credibility with the suite such that you continue to operate.
0: Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. Maybe a follow-up on that is how important would you say is, so I understand the ability to be able to predict and have visibility into the revenue side, but how important is the narrative around it as well? And is that something that a CFO should be relied upon or is that more of the kind of CEO suite that, Hey, this is why the revenue is going to be this and and the narrative around it. I think it's, it's
1: actually evolved. I, I think historically that was probably an area that was more <laughs> The realm of the CEO but increasingly and this is sort of like the, uh, and I see this and I mean I'd be curious with others but increasingly the CFO is being is is a much more strategic member of the of the sort of conversation with investors and not just a reporting executive and so I'm seeing and I and I witnessed this in the chief Morgan CFO is taking on much more of that conversation about how to frame this in the context of the overall strategy and execution of the company
0: yeah that makes sense and and so maybe switching gears now to MA preparedness and it's it's often said that great companies are bought not sold i'm sure you've heard that many times but with that being said though and and To the extent that you can, quote unquote, prepare for M and A, what should you, as a company's finance leader, be thinking about to ensure your company is ready to transact if and when the time occurs?
1: Sure, I agree with your comment that great companies are bought, not sold. The number one thing to have in place and thought through is a go it alone plan, your standalone business plan. Standalone financing plan. That may seem a little bit out of place, but the most powerful negotiating position in any M and A scenario is the ability to simply say no. You've got to have the ability to have confidence in comparing what you're being offered or potentially offered versus what you can do on your own. If your standalone plan and you've built consensus around that and you've built sort of a sense of, of ownership. You can figure out your standalone valuation or have a pretty good idea of where that is. And again, that's a powerful and unifying rallying point for any negotiations that you're about to undertake. So as a leader or as a finance leader or CFO, it's your responsibility to to understand what is your standalone plan over, obviously, there's sort of near-term execution, but longer term and to have an idea or an understanding or framework with your CEO or other members of the senior team and especially the board as to how valuation sort of fits into that based on the standalone plan. It's, it sounds a little bit simple, a little bit trite, but it's 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 incredibly rare that you find organizations that are that prepared and it inspires a sense of confidence when you're dealing in any MA scenario. And, and I think it also sends a message to the board as a finance leader that you've got uh, your ducks in a row and, and are prepared.
0: Right, your alternative of going at it alone and what that's worth to you and the company, knowing that in advance can definitely help you at navigating M&A conversation, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, last question now, before we jump into our quickfire round and that is, what is the biggest misconception about the finance function within growth stage software companies like ClearBank? I'm sure there are many, (laughs) but one
1: that I'm sure of is that we only know one word, and that is no. (laughs) We We get a bad rap for being the sticks in the mud, the ones who are always sort of questioning plans, sort of seeking alternatives or simply having to be the ones that say no. And, and that's fine. I feel very comfortable in that role. But it's this function of saying no, or sort of being the ones that, that may be a little bit of a stick in the mud. It's an important function in the organization where we incur such a high level of entrepreneurial energy. Obviously, in the end, we're supportive of the company's strategy and growth. But we're also the stewards of, of institutional money in the form of our VC partners, which means that all of our decisions. Have to be very well thought through, and uh, we have to have an appropriate framework for how we're deploying our capital. In, in many times many cases, uh, that means uh, saying no, or we need a better, a better plan. That's definitely one area that's probably a misconception is that 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 we're we're the ones that are working against the the great entrepreneurial wave that exists within the company. But we're playing a, I believe anyway, and it's obviously biased a vital function
0: in our growth and our. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And it's one that we've heard other guests share as well. But I think it's a, a misconception, but maybe rightly so, <laughs> just given what, what you what you outlined. What I'd love to do now is jump into our quick fire round. The way this works is I'll ask you a few questions. You'll have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Okay. All right. <laughs> What's your go to online resource for all things finance related? Let's see.
1: I think the answer here is I, I really don't have one. I subscribe to a bunch of newsletters and I stay up to speed on things, so r- really not much here. I, I don't have a go-to one go-to. <laughs> Sorry. In
0: in in a world where we're all in, inundated with uh, newsletters, which are the ones that you make sure you read every morning or evening?
1: I like the Morning Brew a lot, Business Insider, and I read Seeking Alpha's Wall Street newsletter in the morning. Also, the New York Times deal, deal, they have a deal sheet. deal book or something like that. exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: Nice. What's your favorite productivity hack? I think really
1: focusing on impact list versus to-do list. I like to spend my time on impact items rather than just getting stuff done. So I spend a little bit extra time on impact versus just getting stuff done. And that helps me save time. I also, on a more personal level, I read all my business books on Readwise. I find hmm. you can get about 90% of what you need out of business books in about 20 minutes of reading. And that's actually really helped.
0: <laughs> Interesting. I, is that similar to like Blinkist or or I've never heard of Readwise. Yeah, or sorry, maybe
1: it's it's not Readwise, it's InstaRead. Yeah, it's one of these platforms that helps you kind of you get a summary of the book. And I just find that particularly with the way there's been a bit of formulaic way of writing a lot of business books or strategy yeah. books, you can get a lot out of it pretty quickly.
0: Nice, I like that. What's one thing you don't leave uh, your home office before finishing for the day?
1: That one's easy. I make sure I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I know exactly kind of what I need, what what we're going to do, whether that's presentation-wise, presentations we're going to receive, I kind of put that in context for what I need to deliver to various constituents so that when I come in the next day,
0: I know exactly what I'm doing. Right. Makes sense. What's a jargon that makes you cringe? The phrase "to be honest,"
1: (laughs) it's often used in a way. I find this (laughs) dinner to say "top conclusion or opinion." What it literally means is that everything you said before this has been a lie. So somehow this came into our lexicon, and I hear it all the time. And obviously, it doesn't bother a lot of people, but it it just doesn't make any sense. And uh, I hear it a lot.
0: Yeah. I, I think another one in a similar vein is is when you hear to be candid. Well, <laughs> were the other things that you said not candid?
1: <laughs> yeah. like what, what should I take away from this? Where have we been all this time? Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. Last one here. What's the best advice you've received so far in your career?
1: So it, this one, obviously, there's been a lot of great people who have helped me through my career. But one of my mentors at JP Morgan, a senior MD, shared with me early in my career. So sort of I'd been in, I think in the sort of two or three years along. And he shared this phrase with me. He said, for every successful deal, there'll be 20 pigs at the trough. And for every failed pitch or deal, there'll be 20 arrows in just your back. And it sounds pretty harsh. And it's it's actually a phrase, it's sort of a modified, I think it was modified by him or by someone who sort of took it. It's a it's a modified phrase that actually JFK used in describing the US failure at the Bay of Pigs. And the phrase that JFK used was, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. But all of us have experienced this, where you sort of you, you sort of think you've done this and then you feel like other people are taking credit for it, but you realize when something goes wrong, everyone's trying to pin it on your back. But anyway, back to the advice piece. It helped me, early in my career, it really helped me to understand a lot of things, how things work, and how have you you really have to be prepared for either outcome, as painful as it may, might be. So just let success happen and you're a part of it and, and it's fantastic. You don't have to own it all. It's great when people share in it and own your failures and learn from them and sort of continue to kind of push forward. And then on a more personal note, on the flip side, it, for my own personal success, it's sort of a realization that it's not just me you know the advice helped me to understand what gratitude frankly for a lot of the people who have helped me and, and influenced me over my professional career that all the success i've had there's, there's there's been at least 20 people probably more who have been instrumental in that and, and helping me get there so that's that's some of the best sort of it's a bit crass but it's sort of blunt and, and it helped me sort of understand really quickly how a lot of business works
0: that's great advice, for sure. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It's been a pleasure uh, chatting with you about your career journey through JP Morgan and now at ClearBank, as well as chatting with you about the IPO readiness process, getting ready for M&A, if and when that's right, as well as evaluating risk within a startup and how a CFO can help navigate that. So really enjoyed this chat. And thanks again for the time, Kurt. Appreciate thank it. Thank you, two of them. This has been great. Appreciate it. Cheers. Awesome. Take care. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care. Oh, and one last thing before we leave. A final word from our sponsors, Get growing today with Plan to Grow, a free mobile-friendly digital learning and event platform for busy finance professionals. Join industry experts and thought leaders for CPE-accredited talks and tutorials, live and interactive events, insights, and inspiration. Stay informed on the latest trends with live and on-demand videos and continue your professional development with a library of over 35 hours of CPE-accredited talks. Plan to Grow is the ultimate destination to power your growth journey. Head over to plantogrow.com forward slash backbone to unlock your experience.